The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Charles John Huffam Dickens was the greatest novelist of the Victorian age, and some might say the greatest person, or maybe we should say the greatest figure. He was 58 when he died. In that relatively brief span, he went from a hardscrabble childhood to a world-famous author and a universally acknowledged genius, admired and beloved for his unforgettable characters, his powers of observation and empathy, and his championing of the lower classes. He edited a weekly periodical for 20 years, bringing out his own works in installments, 15 novels, 5 novellas, hundreds of articles and short stories. He wrote thousands of pages of letters, ran a sizable household, was a tireless reformer and philanthropist, an amateur theatrical performer, a lecturer and traveler, and at times walked 14 miles every day. His energy was astonishing. All of his activities were lit up with the force of his personality. Like many vivid and remarkable authors, his name became an adjective, Dickensian. But like the author himself, it overflows its boundaries. It can mean a vivid, unusual character, someone with a quirky personality, a source of fun. More often, it's used to describe a horrible tyrant, someone almost comically repulsive, especially a teacher or someone else in charge of children. It can mean squalid social conditions, like a workhouse or a dark and lonely school. It can mean whimsical character names, like Gradgrind. Usually, dictionaries just give up and say, reminiscent of the novels of Charles Dickens. Dickensian? It's everything in there. It's all that. It's him. You know the dude. It's Charles Dickens. But here at the History of Literature podcast, we don't just throw up our hands. We dig in. There are some secrets here and some mysteries, some recent revelations. In the 19th century, he was viewed as a kindly figure, a benevolent figure, a, a patron saint, the Father Christmas of English literature. In the 21st century, we see a more complicated picture. Charles Dickens, today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, the great Charles Dickens. Today on the History of Literature. What do I read, Jack? Where do I begin? You probably know Dickens already. You've maybe watched some of the movies or television adaptations. There have been more than 200 of those. Maybe you've read A Christmas Carol or Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, We'll get into what's worth reading, or at least I'll give you some of my recommendations. Dickens is one of those authors where you can enjoy the best of his works and stop there, or you can just keep going, and by the time you finish all of them, you'll be ready to start over again. At the same time, you might want to just dabble a bit, for reasons I'll explain as well. He has strengths that are probably unmatched, even today, but he also has weaknesses, I don't think you'd want to live on Charles Dickens any more than you'd want to live on root beer floats or Popeye's chicken. Nice for a treat, maybe not the best idea for an exclusive means of nourishment. Before we get to Mr. Dickens, let's hear an email. 
Ah, excuse me. Someone seems to be at the door. Yes. Hello? Hello. I'm Oliver Twist. Oliver! Mogul, please, sir. <laughs> That's all I'm asking for. I and guess who's known. been doling out the gruel here at the workhouse? Who's that, Oliver? Why, it's that insufferable drudge, Mr. Jack Wilson. Oh. Ah, uh, I guess he ain't I a bad feel. sort. When he's not jawing my ear off about some chap named Dickens. Oh, well. I couldn't care less about meeting some old writer fellow. <laughs> but I would like some more gruel. Won't you please throw oh. a few shillings at Mr. Wilson so he can spare another spoonful of slop for me and the other lads? We'll consider ourselves grateful. Oh, Oliver, I should have known you'd be here for this. Although... Sad to say, I will indeed be jawing your ear off about some old chap named Dickens for about the next 45 minutes or so. Our old friend Oliver. You're the star today, Oliver. The star. Or one of them, at least. Oliver Twist. Poor guy. He was not Dickens' favorite. We'll tell you more about that later. But first, let's talk about Oliver and what he's here for. Yes, our Patreon account. We are trying our best to keep things going here at the Jack Wilson studio, keeping the lights on and so forth. It's all very important. And if you'd like to throw a few coppers our way, or a happeny or two, a shilling, a bob, whatever you can spare, you can do so in a couple of ways. One, you can go to patreon.com literature and sign up for a small monthly recurring donation. Or you can go straight on over to historyofliterature.com shop and buy me a virtual coffee, which is basically a $5 coffee. You can buy as many as you'd like. I'm overjoyed when people sign up for this using their credit card or PayPal account. I'm extremely grateful. And sometimes I get a little misty. So there we go. There's the truth. I'm a big softie when it comes to this show and its fans and supporters. Sentimental. I don't mind admitting it. This week, we're thanking new Patreons Nigel H. and Angela P. Many thanks. We are truly, truly grateful for your support. And here's an email we received. I also want to thank all the emailers who send us feedback at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com or who tweet at us at thejackwilson. This one says, Greetings, Jack. My name is Quentin, and I am a new listener to the History of Literature podcast having just discovered it over the last few months. I enjoy it immensely as a third-year English undergraduate and an up-and-coming writer. Your discussion on Greek tragedy, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and The Catcher in the Rye are among my favorite episodes. I typically listen to the podcast as I'm doing laundry or relaxing before bed with a cup of hot tea. Typically caffeine-free, I assure you. <laughs> As an aside, Quentin, why do you need to assure me of that? I don't judge. <laughs> I don't judge. Back to the email. I wanted you to know what a difference I think you are making in the realm of podcasts. I believe that this difference extends to our modern conception of literature. Your podcast is helping to keep the written word alive and well in the complicated realm of the 21st century. We are still creatures who love a good story and desire to be entertained by a strong narrative, and I thank you for providing me with a continuous stream of literary knowledge as I am on summer break. I always think of my English program as a six-month-long book club with essays, and I love every moment of it. I was wondering if you had thought about doing a podcast on gothic literature or the fantasy genre featuring writers like Tolkien or Lewis. Just a thought. Keep up the excellent work. And I look forward to listening to your continued passion and knowledge on the history of literature. Warm regards, 
Quentin. Quentin, thank you so much for the email. I'm so glad to hear you've been enjoying the show. I love hearing about where people are and what they're doing when they're listening. Laundry and tea. It actually sounds pretty nice here in D.C. where it's been raining hard. Cats and dogs. I like being indoors in the summer with the weather outside and away from me. (laughs) Me inside, dry and brief excursions into the wild. Leaps into the unknown and retreats into the coziness and comforts of home. I'm honored that you take the podcast with you. Just very pleased to be along for the ride. Okay, everyone, let's leap into Dickens together. We'll do that after this. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Charles Dickens was born in 1812. His father was a Navy pay clerk. They had a large family, Charles was the second of eight children, and they spent his earliest years moving around from Portsea to London to Kent. The earliest years for Charles were happy for the most part. Charles showed some promise, maybe even early genius, and his father recognized this. He used to bring Charles to work, position him on a high stool, and have him entertain the room of clerks with his stories. His imagination was fired up at a young age, and he had a century's worth of novelists who could show him how a narrative voice might spin out a long story. His room was in the attic, and it led out into a small room that contained books, including Roderick Random, Humphrey Clinker, and Peregrine Pickle, by the Scottish 18th-century novelist Tobias Smollett. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding Dickens later named his son Henry Fielding Dickens. The Vicar of Wakefield by the Irish novelist Oliver Goldsmith was on the shelf, and some other adventure tales like The Arabian Nights, Don Quixote, Gil Blas, which is a French picaresque novel, and our old friend Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. But then came a period that was to change him forever, an unforgettable stretch that turned him into the person and novelist that we came to know. His father, John, fell into debt And when Charles was ten, he was consigned, John was consigned to a debtor's prison with his wife and the younger children. That's where they lived. Charles and his sister were held out of the prison and visited them only on Sundays. During the week, 
His sister studied music at the Royal Academy, but Charles, on the other hand, was forced to leave school in order to help pay for his room and board by working in a warehouse that made pots of boot blacking. Here's how he described it years later. Quote, The blacking warehouse was the last house on the left-hand side of the way at Old Hungerford Stairs. It was a crazy, tumble-down old house, abutting, of course, on the river, and literally overrun with rats. Its wainscoted rooms and its rotten floors and staircase and the old gray rats swarming down in the cellars and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling coming up the stairs at all times and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor looking over the coal barges and the river. There was a recess in it in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper and then with a piece of blue paper, to tie them round with a string, and then to clip the paper close and neat all round until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary's shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label and then go on again with more pots. Two or three other boys were kept at similar duty downstairs on similar wages. One of them came up in a ragged apron and a paper cap on the first Monday morning to show me the trick of using the string and tying the knot. His name was Bob Fagan, and I took the liberty of using his name long afterwards in Oliver Twist. End quote. The family's fortunes took a sudden turn when his father inherited some money unexpectedly and was able to buy his way out of debtor's prison. Inheritance and sudden reversals were, of course, hallmarks of Dickens's fiction, but they were also present in his life. Even so, Charles remembered the feeling sharply, ten years old, and everyone had given up on him. So young to be cast away, he wrote. No more school, this is your lot in life, working in a boot-black factory, one step ahead of prison. There was one other legacy from the time in the boot-blacking warehouse. It involved his mother. We're going to talk about Dickens and the women in his life later. He was charitable toward fallen women, women in the abstract. He empathized with them as a category, just as he empathized with down-and-out working men or children of any kind. But he had a hard marriage. He treated his wife poorly in a kind of sensationalistic way. And there are some possible reasons for his behavior that we'll entangle further when we get there. But remember this formative experience, the difficulty he had getting over something that his mother did. After the family got out of prison, and better days were ahead for the Dickenses, his father had a small fortune from this inheritance, his mother suggested that they should leave Charles at his job so that he could keep earning money. Eight kids, I guess that's a lot of kids, and she must not have had the kind of vision to see that a child like Charles needed a few more years to grow or better opportunities. Her thought was, Charles has a job, Charles earns money, let's leave him to it for a while longer. Can always use more money was an awful job, but apparently that didn't matter to her. But Charles never forgot it, viewed it as a betrayal. His father, John, found work again in a lawyer's office this time, and the lawyer, liking Charles's general look and the 
The spark in his eyes, his seeming intelligence, pulled him in as well. And Charles, as he grew into his teenage years, he started doing well in the law, which allowed him to learn more about this institution and lawyering as a profession. And eventually he became a reporter who went to trials and other events and wrote up the news of what was happening. This was a great period for him as he roamed around London with a 20-year-old's energy and ambition now being given a kind of outlet, or maybe it's better to say a, play, a playground or a landscape in which to roam an entire major city. Eventually, the reports he filed, the sketches he wrote became more vivid and comedic until they were basically character sketches or fiction. And here, he found almost immediate success. First, with sketches by Boz, the name he was publishing his earliest work under, and then when he was 24, The Pickwick Papers, a series of sketches that were a smash hit and an early but unmistakable sign of Dickens's special genius. The Pickwick Papers had an interesting origin. It wasn't meant to be a novel or even a collection of colorful literary portraits. Instead, it was originally designed to be a set of illustrations. Dickens had been brought in to write brief commentary or sketches to link the pictures together. But the pictures were the selling point. Soon enough, his stories were so dynamic and compelling that the artist started making illustrations to suit the story rather than the other way around. And it became clear that people were buying these installments because of the words, Dickens's words, with the pictures being only a side benefit. Dickens became hugely famous, and suddenly his words were much in demand and potentially very lucrative. One of the interesting things about Dickens' The Man is how immediately he shed his origins and assumed a kind of literary mantle with all of its privileges and responsibilities. He understood his power, he understood how good he was, how in demand he was, and he exercised it appropriately. He weighed in on political issues and jumped into projects and charities and social reform efforts. He sent his kids to good schools, he traveled. In other words, he lived more like someone who'd been raised in comfort well-positioned to succeed than someone who had grown up in squalor and beaten down at every turn. And yet, as we know, he never forgot those origins, even as he transcended them. Here's how an early 20th century commentator summarized Dickens's success, his artistic achievement, and his role that he came to play in the literary landscape. Quote, his unique force in literature he was to owe to no supreme artistic or intellectual quality, but almost entirely to his inordinate gift of observation, his sympathy with the humble, his power over the emotions, and his incomparable endowment of unalloyed human fun. To contemporaries, he was not so much a man as an institution, at the very mention of whose name faces were puckered with grins or wreathed in smiles." To many, his work was a revelation, the revelation of a new world and one far better than their own. He did for the whole English-speaking race what Burns had done for Scotland. He gave it a new conceit of itself. He knew what a people wanted, and he told what he knew. He could do this better than anybody else because his mind was theirs. He shared many of their great useless virtues— among which generosity ranks before justice and sympathy before truth. Even though, true to his middle-class vein, he exalts piety, chastity, and honesty in a manner somewhat alien to the mind of the low-bred man. 
This is what makes Dickens such a demigod and his public success such a marvel, and this also is why any exclusively literary criticism of his work is bound to be so inadequate. End quote. In addition to his novels and novellas, Dickens wrote incredible letters. They were long, packed with observations, descriptions of people and places, humorous anecdotes. He gets a full head of steam going and gusto takes over. Everything is a wonder. Everything is amazing. You should have seen us, dot, 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 is a typical formulation. You should have seen us as we, dot, dot, dot. He piles up places and people like someone determined to catalog the world. And yet, his narrative voice comes through. He was, to his core, a master storyteller. G.K. Chesterton observed that Dickens had all his life the faults of the little boy who was kept up too late at night. He is overwrought by happiness to the verge of exasperation, and yet, as a matter of fact, he does keep on the right side of the breaking point. Dickens was married and had ten children with two miscarriages. We're going to save the story of his marriage until the end. It was unhappy and had an unhappy ending. It's been suggested by some that he married the wrong sister. He dated one sister and then married another, and then, after the marriage ended, hired a third sister to be his housekeeper and was close to her for something like ten years, almost as a sort of best friend. His children all disappointed him. Once he claimed that he had brought up the largest family ever known with the smallest disposition to do anything for themselves. You get the sense from his descriptions that he ignored his children and once in a while sized them up, decided that they were all awful failures, each of them having their own particular deficiencies, then did little himself to correct anything or guide them in any way, but merely went back to work. Maybe this was the Victorian way. At the same time, he was creating some of the most famous children in all of literature. After the Pickwick Papers, he wrote Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. He was 27 now, and at 29, he wrote The Old Curiosity Shop, which in some ways might be the most fascinating case study of Dickens, the popular writer versus Dickens as he was viewed, he's come to be viewed by later generations. In the old curiosity shop, he created a character, a young girl called Little Nell, who kind of ran away from her creator, I think. She's young, not quite 14, and an orphan. She lives with her grandfather, who secretly gambles at night in order to try to escape their impoverished, impoverished surroundings, build a better life for Little Nell. Nell never complains, but she has a hard life with very few friends her age, and a wasteful brother who arrives and tries to steal the fortune he believes the grandfather has amassed. There are evil characters at every turn looking to steal from them or cheat them, and her grandfather is kind of forlorn, and there's a growing sense that Nell's health is on the line as well as her future. Remember, this was coming out in serial form, as nearly all of Dickens's works did, and people all over the world were following the story. One of the writer friends, his writer friends, emphasized that it was artistically necessary to have Nell die. And Dickens said, I know. <laughs> I agree. Nell was going to die. Little Nell, the plucky heroine, already beloved by throngs of readers, was going to die. It was the only possible ending. But as Dickens started foreshadowing the death, the public started going crazy. They flooded his offices with letters, begging him to have mercy on Nell, to let her live. 
Dickens himself began to suffer, almost as if he himself was a murderer, an actual murderer, killing off a beloved person rather than just a character. The anguish, he said, was unspeakable. So he wrote it up in what we now view as maybe the most overly sentimental scene in all of literature. Only Dickens could tug at the heartstrings like this, and only Dickens did. His readers were staggered by the awfulness and the pain of the death scene. The actor McReady, returning home from the theater, saw the story, which had a print of the child lying dead by the window with strips of holly on her breast, and said that a dead chill ran through his blood. He wrote in his diary, quote, I have never read printed words that gave me so much pain. I could not weep for some time. Sensations, sufferings have returned to me that are terrible to awaken. End quote. An Irish member of parliament named Daniel O'Connell was reading the book in a railway carriage. He burst into tears, yelled, he should not have killed her, and threw the book out the train window. Has any book had this kind of effect? I remember feeling this way when I was watching Breaking Bad, the ending. Sometimes I'd be standing up, pacing around. Sometimes I'd fall to the floor on my knees, begging Vince Gilligan for a character to be spared, terrified by what I was seeing, even though it was all made up. I knew these were, <laughs> I knew these were actors. I wasn't five years old. Thomas Carlyle was not a big fan of Dickens. He could be a little bit supercilious towards him, and yet he said he was overcome by the death scene as well. America was getting the news a little later, as the installments took some time to cross the pond. Crowds formed at a pier in New York, and onlookers would yell at the ships arriving from England, Is little Nell dead? Now, we can laugh at this or dismiss it. We are way too jaded to be affected like this by books unless we choose to allow ourselves to be, maybe here and there on a one-off basis. Maybe I shouldn't speak for everyone. Maybe I shouldn't even speak for myself. I haven't read this since I've had children, Old Curiosity Shop. And I can tell you that a lot of things that I used to scoff at when I was in my teens and early 20s, I now find unbearable. Parenting will do that to you, I guess. But for now, let's just marvel at the death of Little Nell as a phenomenon. How many authors can say that they've had an experience like that? J.K. Rowling comes to mind, and Arthur Conan Doyle had a similar situation with Sherlock Holmes. And Charles Dickens, are there any others? Any others whose work was so eagerly anticipated, who have crowds of people desperate to know what's going to happen, who demand a happy ending, who need it, who blame the author if it looks like it's going to go the other way? <laughs> These are fictional characters. Part of this is because we no longer have this tradition of serialized novels, I suppose. Episodes are the realm of television, and that's where we might see something similar. A favorite character about to die off or dying off, and a public outcry. And then a shocking event as the public gets what it did not want. And then... When it came to Little Nell, the spell was broken. That's the other interesting thing. This didn't last. In fact, the death of Little Nell came to be seen as one of Dickens' biggest flaws. It's like a Paul McCartney song, a huge hit, tapped into something essential in the hearts and minds of the audience, and then later, soon after, it gets criticized. It's viewed as emblematic of 
his worst indulgences, his schlocky side, his sappy side, his overly sentimental side. The death of Little Nell was the ebony and ivory of its day. Ebony and Ivory was a number one song. <laughs> I think it was Paul McCartney's last number one song. And now people hold it up and say, darn it. If John had been around, this would have never have gotten past. Just look at what Paul lapsed into when he didn't have his filter. But it was a hit. It must have been doing something, right? Why judge it by contemporary standards when it was moving people in its time? Oscar Wilde said, quote, You would need to have a heart of stone not to laugh at the death of Little Nell. End quote. <laughs> it's one of his most famous sayings at a beautiful encapsulation of how we've changed since the era of Dickens. It's interesting to see these literary phases as generations pass from one to the other. William Wordsworth great romantic poet, and Dickens overlapped a bit. Wordsworth was old. He said Dickens was very talkative, a vulgar young person, and he claimed that he'd never read a word of his writing. Think of an old poet laureate shaking his fist at the hot young writer and telling him to get off his lawn. Dickens, in return, called him a, quote, dreadful old ass, end quote. Then there's Oscar Wilde, 40 years or so after Dickens, already finding the sentimentality ludicrous. We more or less share that view today. We're closer to Wilde and Edgar Allan Poe, another cynical SOB, than we are to Dickens. On the other hand, Wilde and Poe seem impossibly old to us as well. They're outdated now, too. Generations change. People move on. Speaking of Poe, Dickens's next novel, Barnaby Rudge, is hardly ever read today. It's famous for its extraordinarily complicated plot. Edgar Allan Poe, getting the installments, predicted the conclusion. That was a neat trick. It was probably way more than was needed to be impressive. It's been suggested that not only did Poe predict the conclusion, he's one of the few people to actually understand what happened at all. Dickens was... Busy in those years, he was putting out his own weekly periodical, Master Humphrey's Clock, and filling its pages with fiction and articles and whatever was needed. He was happiest at his writing desk, although he was pretty happy in life, too. He was known for his roaring laughter. He could fall apart at the simplest of events. Once he was reduced to tears when he saw a woman trying to get her husband's attention, reaching out her hand and saying, Darling, and the man didn't hear her. Something about the scene delighted Dickens. He couldn't breathe. He laughed for several minutes. Might sound like a crazy person. If this were Dostoevsky, we'd say he was unleashing some kind of strange demon, some inner pain, some psychological disturbance. With Dickens, I think it was more of a love of life, which he viewed with a lot of humor. Human beings are funny because we're so ridiculous. That was sort of his worldview. But it wasn't the only thing that mattered to him. It didn't mean there wasn't pain and injustice and suffering. We've sort of lost that now, I think, that side. Now I think people view the world as absurd. Writers do this. The world is absurd, so I'm checking out. No more politics, no more engaging with the world. I'm going to sit over here and write about how pointless everything is, how rigged the game is. And in fact, I'm going to draw this picture of squirrels and say that it has meaning 
because it's the only damn thing around that's sincere and heartfelt and not phony. That's such a an irritating feature of my generation, frankly, the inability to be sincere when people are actually suffering, the turning away, the turning toward pop culture or cutesy literature. Dickens, I think, had a better balance. The world was crazy. People were full of all of these mannerisms and funny gestures. And yet, that didn't mean there weren't real injustices that needed attention. Society could be reformed. So we weren't treating children like animals. Dickens made his first visit to America in 1842. He was received like a celebrity with packed crowds that greeted all of his lecture stops. He didn't stop his social reforming at the borders. He wrote a pamphlet criticizing slavery. His household was getting bigger now. He wrote a novel called Martin Chuzzlewit. There's another book that's little read today. His expenses were getting bigger, and he started sliding toward debt, which is not something the son of a debtor ever wants to do. He developed a plan to leave the country to save money. He went to France for a while, and this did help his finances, but ultimately... He could never stay away from England for very long, and when he left, he thought about little else but returning. He craved the London streets. He went on long walks in France. This is where he walked 14 miles a day when he was there. I think he needed London and its streets for his observations. Grist for that writerly mill. I'm not going to go through all of his books. There was the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, of course, which basically invented the way we view Christmas and the way we view ghosts, for that matter. That's called A Christmas Carol, if you only know it by other names. There was also a novel called Dombey and Son, which has some merit and which he wrote while he was also traveling around giving amateur theatrical performances. He was in an amateur theatrical troupe. I've never read a biography of Dickens that didn't at some point stop and marvel at his energy and activity. You could give the man 48 hours in a day and he'd still be a miraculous force. And now we're coming to the book that Dickens himself loved the best. We'll have that story and the secret life of Charles Dickens after this. In 1849, when Charles Dickens was 37, he wrote David Copperfield, a beautiful novel written in the first person. And with enough parallels to Dickens' own life, it's easy to view it through the prism of autobiography. It starts with chapter one, I Am Born, and it immediately establishes, like his old favorites, Fielding and Smollett and Lawrence Stern and other great predecessor novelists, a kind of charming, meandering voice telling about his telling us about his life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, observing things along the way with precision and insight and good humor. If you have the room in your mind for it, if you have the room in your schedule, the patience, it's a fun read. Of all my books, Dickens wrote, I like this the best. Like many fond parents, I have my favorite child, and his name is David Copperfield. Bleak House came next with its story of an interminable lawsuit Asked by a newspaper for his favorite passage in Dickens, the novelist David Lodge chose the beginning of Bleak House. It's very, very famous. I'm going to read it to give you a, a taste of Dickens, so you can remember what his prose is like. 
Lodge said, quote, This is one of the finest openings to a novel ever written. On one level, it is a vividly realistic picture of London and the River Thames in filthy weather, but Dickens's metaphorical imagination and prophetic style makes the mud, accumulating at compound interest, and all-pervasive fog symbols of the greed and injustice endemic in the social system over which the Lord High Chancellor presides. End quote. Here's the opening. London. Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall. Implacable November weather, as much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, forty feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. Smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle, with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs, undistinguishable in mire, horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers. Foot passengers, jostling one another's umbrellas in a general infection of ill-temper and losing their foothold at street corners, where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement, and accumulating at compound interest. Fog everywhere, fog up the river where it flows among green alts and meadows, fog down the river where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marches, marshes, fog on the Kentish heights, fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs, fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships, fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats, fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards, fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper down in his close cabin, fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on deck, chance people on the bridges peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all round them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Gas looming through the fog in divers' places in the streets, much as the sun may, from the spongy fields, be seen to loom by husbandman and plowboy. Most of the shops lighted two hours before their time, as the gas seems to know, for it has a haggard and unwilling look. The raw afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest near that leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar, in Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog sits the Lord High Chancellor in his high court of chancery. End quote. It's a masterful passage, just incredible. Painting an incredible picture of London and this Lord High Chancellor in the center of it all. There's the novel Hard Times and Little Dorrit. All of these are sort of Second-tier Dickens, which is not to say that they're not excellent, 
just not quite as excellent as the others. There's the great story of the French Revolution, A Tale of Two Cities. That opening is also famous and often quoted. Here it is, quote, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state preserves of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. End quote. And then in 1861, age 49, Dickens wrote Great Expectations, the story of the young orphaned Pip and his adventures as he grows up, the story of inheritances and prisons and ships, the fights, mysterious and dangerous, menacing people who may or may not be on his side. Many consider Great Expectations to be Dickens's greatest work, perhaps his most mature, when the narrative is tightest and the themes are the best developed. He had gotten very good at what he did. He owned his craft. I love Great Expectations. It's probably my favorite of his novels. It was one of those books I had with me in China. When I was traveling across China and into Tibet back in the post-Tiananmen Square days, and books in English were hard to come by, Flaubert was acceptable, Madame Bovary, because it showed the hollowness of bourgeois culture, and Dickens was acceptable for much the same reasons, showed the terrors of capitalism. So I had Emma and Pip for long stretches out there on the plains of western China and Tibet. Pip was good company. If you're going to read one Dickens novel... I'd start there. In fact, here's my recommendations. If you're going to read one, start with one. Maybe choose Great Expectations or David Copperfield. If you need to start with something shorter, there's A Christmas Carol or A Tale of Two Cities. The early works, if you want to go for the early energetic works, The Pickwick Papers or Oliver Twist. And for something later and even more mature, something sophisticated, Bleak House. The Bleak House miniseries on the BBC with Gillian Anderson is also very good. Back to our chronology. In 1865, Dickens was in a train crash. Six carriages plummeted off a cast iron bridge, and Dickens was in the only first-class car that stayed on the track. He raced down to help the victims, tending to them with water and brandy, until more help could arrive. We're almost to the end of Dickens' life now. We're going to circle back and talk about his marriage and family because I think it's a key to understanding how we think of Dickens today. But Charles had a couple more books in him. Our Mutual Friend and Edwin Drood. But he was fading now. He was in his 50s. But he had lived like a comet and the comet was reaching the end of its arc. He was ill. He took another tour to America went on a couple of farewell tours in England and Scotland, but he collapsed on one of those tours. He had a stroke, and it seemed the end was nearing. In 1870, he met Queen Victoria, which apparently he had had the opportunity to do before, but he had postponed. 
She wanted him to accept a title, which he declined, as always, except for a nominal title. At their meeting, she presented him with a book of, of her own, a book that she had written, called Leaves from a Journal of Our Life in the Highlands. She had inscribed it, quote, from one of the humblest of authors to one of the greatest, end quote. Dickens died that year. He wanted to be buried in Rochester Cathedral in an expensive, this is a quote, in an expensive, unostentatious, and strictly private manner, end quote. Instead, he was whisked off to Westminster Abbey and buried in Poet's Corner. Modesty would not do. The public had their Father Christmas, and he would be given the treatment that his reputation warranted. Interestingly, it wasn't just modesty that drove him from the spotlight at times. When he was in that train crash that I mentioned earlier, for example, he dodged publicity and managed to avoid appearing at the inquest. This wasn't just modesty. He was covering up a secret life. For years, he'd been having an affair with a woman named Ellen Turnan, an actress whom he'd met when she was 18 and he was 37. He'd been traveling with her and her mother and he did not want to let the public know about it. He was disguised from the public. His wife found out when Dickens... Well, first let, me tell you, first, let me tell you another unusual fact about their relationship. They met when Dickens cast her in a play to replace his daughter, who was 17, Katie Dickens. So in comes Ellen Turnan. Dickens confessed that his marriage had been on the wane, and the two of them became what Dickens called a magic circle of one. Dickens's wife discovered the truth when Dickens ordered an expensive gold bracelet with a note from him to be delivered to Ellen Turnan, and they mistakenly delivered it to Mrs. Dickens. In 1911, the Encyclopedia Britannica summarized Dickens as follows, quote, Dickens had no artistic ideals worth speaking about. The sympathy of his readers was the one thing he cared about. And like Cobbett, he went straight for it through the avenue of the emotions. In personality, intensity, and range of creative genius, he can hardly be said to have any modern rival. His creations live, move, and have their being about us constantly, like those of Homer, Virgil, Chaucer, Rabelais, Cervantes, Shakespeare, Bunyan, Moliere, and Sir Walter Scott. As to the books themselves, the backgrounds on which these mighty figures are projected, they are manifestly too vast, too chaotic, and too unequal ever to become classics. Like most of the novels constructed upon the unreformed model of Smollett and Fielding, those of Dickens are enormous stockpots into which the author casts every kind of autobiographical experience, emotion, pleasantry, anecdote, adage, or epithem. The fusion is necessarily very incomplete, and the hodgepodge is bound to fall to pieces with time. Dickens's plots, it must be admitted, are strangely unintelligible. The repetitions and stylistic decorations of his work exceed all bounds. The form is unmanageable and insignificant. The diffuseness of the English novel, in short, and its extravagant didacticism cannot fail to be most prejudicial to its perpetuation. In these circumstances, there is very little fiction that will stand concentration and condensation so well as that of Dickens.
For these reasons, among others, our interest in Dickens's novels as integers has diminished and is diminishing. But on the other hand, our interest and pride in him as a man and as a representative author of his age and nation has been steadily augmented and is still mounting. Much of the old criticism of his work, that it was not up to a sufficiently high level of art, scholarship, or gentility, that as an author he is given to caricature, redundancy, and a shameless subservience to popular caprice, must now be discarded as irrelevant. End quote. You can hear that 50 years after Dickens' death. People had a growing appreciation. Well, sure, maybe the novels are flawed, but look at what a man he was. Look at the good works that he did. Look at what he stands for. Look at the changes that came about as a result of his novels and his tireless advocacy for social reform. We tend to agree with the assessment of his novels today. You can tell a lot about Dickens from his fans and his critics. The fans include novelists like Tom Wolfe and John Irving. Leo Tolstoy was an admirer. George Orwell, who I think loved the Englishness of Dickens. T.S. Eliot was kind of a surprise to me. He admired the efficient way that Dickens could generate a character, a vivid character. They all praise him for that, his vivid characters, his social reform, his realism, the sharpness of his eye, and his comic voice. His critics, strongest critics, have included Virginia Woolf and Henry James and Oscar Wilde, and that tells us something as well. They tend to object to his meandering and sometimes chatty narrative, his repetition, his confusing plots, although it's usually acknowledged that the serial format had something to do with the forms of the novels. They also note his lack of psychological depth and, of course, his excessive sentimentalism. I tend to agree with the critics. I grow impatient with the narrative sometimes, and I like a good, finely constructed plot rather than a loose, baggy one. Life is short. I don't always have time for 900 pages full of digression, though Dickens's excursions are better than many. Some of the biographies written about Dickens are as fascinating as any of his novels. Seems almost blasphemous to say, and don't get me wrong, I think the five or six Dickens novels that I mentioned earlier, those of him at his peak are treasures, but it's probably true. We appreciate the man today as much as we appreciate the novels. Now, a lot of people say that Dickens' secret life exposes him as a nasty person, tarnishes that legacy of him as a man. It's true that he did not treat his children with much love, which seems incredible now, given how much empathy for children he showed in his novels. It almost makes you think that Dickens's empathy was actually something more like self-pity. He couldn't see that his own children needed help. They were rich, after all. They had means. But he remembered what it was like to be abandoned, to be cast away. What's worse is the way he treated his wife after they fell out of love. He accused her in public writings. He suggested that she was mentally unstable. When they had met, when they were young, they were more or less equals. But then his success made him famous. Suddenly, he had all the power in their relationship. And as their marriage crumbled, he seems to have exerted that power unfairly. We can look at that and say, hey, Here's another repressed Victorian, unhappy in love, unhappy sexually, 
but afraid of the morality police, afraid to admit his true feelings. So he has a secret affair, and he goes out of his way to hide it and deny it, and in the end, he hurts a lot of people and turns himself into a deceptive liar. Scholars today are doing things like studying his letters with infrared equipment and finding secret instructions of payments that he wanted his lawyer to make to his mistress. These were passages that were hidden, concealed, deleted, but today... We jump on them and say, this guy was really a piece of work. He was living a double life. He was not the person he wanted the public to think he was. Looks desperate. Well, that's one way to view it. But there's another way. Think about what it was like to be Dickens, to have all these people counting on you, to be their champion, to be their reformer, to be their advocate, to be their Father Christmas. And imagine being out of love with your wife and in love with somebody new and to know that this would destroy your reputation in the eyes of society. And maybe you could handle it because what do you care? You're rich and famous and you can do what you want. But maybe the public needed you, needed you to be the figure that they thought you were. Maybe they needed a tireless champion whose nonfiction could compel new legislation to make working and living conditions better, and whose fiction could change hearts and minds and make everyone in your nation, everyone who encountered them, a little better, a little more caring, a little more thoughtful, a little more light in the world, a little more love. And you have your own failings, but the talent you've been given has its own persona attached to it. Maybe you try to work that into your writing, especially your later writing, to address problems with marriage and to suggest to the world that the heart is a complicated organ, as difficult to harness and train and change as society itself is. Maybe that's why you live a double life, because one side of you is a human and the other side of you is a saint, and the world is better off having both of you around. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Charles Dickens. I almost wish we'd gone novel by novel. He's such a huge, important figure. Speaking of novel by novel, we should have Emma coming up soon. And do you know we never actually have done Macbeth? I've been saving it up. Trying to get some Yates going as well. always, Always room for Yates. And of course, we have Mike Palindrome soon. The return of Mike Palindrome. That could be a Dickens novel itself. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>